Thank you for downloading episode 7 of the podcast. Before you get started, I just wanted to drop in and let you know that for some reason, the audio on about the final third of the show came in really wonky. I tried to fix it as best I could, but um, it still kind of sounds like I'm talking into a tin can attached to a string, and unfortunately I didn't have time to go back and re-record the show. So again, sorry for the poor audio, but... It's just the back third of the show, and I will hopefully have that completely fixed by next week. Enjoy. Welcome, and thank you for joining me for Ghosts of Arlington. Episode 7, Arlington Enters the 20th Century, a.k.a. Fighting Joe Wheeler, Confederate General, American General. Before we begin this week, I want to give a shout out to Ryan Hunt and the good people at the Mountain Up Cap Company. Mountain Up is a veteran-run apparel company that honors the legacy of the U.S. Army 10th Mountain Light Infantry Division. If you have listened to Episode 0 of the podcast, you know that the 10th Mountain has a special place in my heart, and Ryan has kindly agreed to let me plug this show on the Mountain Up Facebook page. I'm not trying to find sponsors for the show, but I am trying to reach a wider audience in my humble attempt to honor the memories of those buried in Arlington, and as of this recording, Mountain Up has more than 33,000 followers on Facebook. If you are interested in seeing the cool hats, shirts, and other apparel Mountain Up has to offer, check out their website, mountainupcaps.com. The site is also in the show notes. I bought a 10th Mountain Trucker hat last year and have enjoyed wearing it, and again, I give a heartfelt thank you to Ryan and the entire Mountain Up team for giving me the opportunity to spread the word about this labor of love. Climb to glory. Now, back to business. Up to this point, I have been telling the story of Arlington National Cemetery by focusing on what was happening at the cemetery itself. This week, we're going to focus on world events, namely the Spanish-American War, but it will all tie back to the history and development of the cemetery. Last week, we finished our two-part biography of the life of Union Quartermaster General Montgomery Meggs, who almost single-handedly willed Arlington National Cemetery into existence out of his bitter enmity towards his former mentor, Robert E. Lee. When Meggs was laid to rest in Section 1 of Arlington in 1892, very few senior generals from either side of the conflict remained. The Civil War had been over for almost 30 years, but the sore feelings between the North and South that came out of the conflict remained. Jump ahead with me to February 15, 1898, 
when the still and quiet Cuban night surrounding Havana Harbor was ripped apart by an explosion aboard the American battleship USS Maine. The Maine had come to Cuba to evacuate American citizens if the ongoing unrest between the native Cubans and the Spanish colonial authorities got out of hand. Spanish-American relations were already strained over Cuba, and the explosion, which cost the lives of more than 260 American sailors and marines, only made things worse. At the time of the incident, several prominent Americans, including newspaper magnates William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, began agitating to expel Spain from the Western Hemisphere to allow U.S. influence to continue to spread over the region. President William McKinley, who had served as a major in the Union Army and had lived through the carnage of Antietam, the bloodiest day in American history, among other Civil War actions, was not keen to start another war. McKinley convened a naval inquiry board into the matter and hoped that would create time to allow cooler heads to prevail, but it did nothing of the sort. While the investigation was ongoing, many on Capitol Hill and some in McKinley's own administration, including Assistant Secretary of the Navy Theodore Roosevelt, began clamoring for action against Spain. This was on top of the growing public desire to avenge the Maine. Less than a month after the explosion in Havana Harbor, Congress allotted $50 million for war preparations. You know, just in case. Over at the War Department, hasty plans were drawn up to recruit volunteers and appoint officers to rapidly expand an army that had shrunken to 30,000 soldiers in the post-war years. When Congress approved the bill, it was said that a rebel yell, the fierce and unique battle cry of the Confederate Army, pierced the decorum of the House of Representatives and every eye in the chamber fell upon the wiry, 5-foot, 2-inch, 61-year-old representative from Alabama, Joseph Wheeler. First elected in 1891, Wheeler was known as Fighting Joe from his hard-charging days as a lieutenant general of Southern Cavalry. During the Civil War, Wheeler had fought in more than 200 engagements, had 16 horses shot out from under him, and had been wounded three times. He had earned the respect of both William T. Sherman, whom he plagued incessantly, and Robert E. Lee, who put him on with Jeb Stewart as a cavalry officer. After the war and Reconstruction, Representative Wheeler worked as hard to reconcile North and South relations as General Wheeler had worked to sever them. The day after the main explosion, Wheeler wrote to President McKinley reminding him that the War Department had his tender of service on file. On May 25th, just over a month after the explosion, the Board of Inquiry released its findings, concluding that a mine had set off two shipboard magazines which had destroyed the battleship. The report found no evidence that Spain or its agents were responsible, but by now that was a moot point, and the drums of war were beating too loudly to be stopped. As an aside, 
The mine theory about the destruction of the USS Maine held for nearly 80 years, but a study published in 1976 and later reissued in 1995 determined that the ship was destroyed from the inside when burning coal in a bunker triggered an explosion in an adjacent ammunition magazine. It's hard to say if even that conclusion in 1898 would have been enough to avert the coming war. As it was, Congress declared war on Spain on April 22nd. Spain declared war on April 23rd, and McKinley summoned Fighting Joe Wheeler to the White House on April 26th to offer him an appointment as one of only 15 major generals in the United States Army. Wheeler happily accepted the appointment, saying he was eager to wear Union blue once more. Interestingly, another former Confederate, Fitzhugh Lee, Robert E. Lee's nephew, was also made a major general at the start of the Spanish-American War. Fitz knew more than just about anyone about conditions in Cuba where he had served as the U.S. Consul General in the Grover Cleveland administration. The news that these two prominent Confederates would be fighting under the old flag won almost universal praise. The Indianapolis News reported, quote, There is no longer a North or a South in the old sense. It is but a memory, end quote. The New York Tribune praised McKinley for these appointments, quote, Even a year ago, such appointments would have been almost impossible. A common enemy has removed the last vestige of proscription. The Southern is as anxious to defend the country as the Northern, and some anxiety is expressed in the South, lest the war end, before the old Confederates have a chance to march under the Stars and Stripes. Brown troops did see combat in Cuba, and more than a few Southerners fought under the Stars and Stripes. Of course, old habits die hard, and during one particularly heated engagement, Wheeler's assaulting troops finally dislodged a well-entrenched Spanish defense force, causing the old general to whoop, We've got the damn Yankees on the run! First Lieutenant John J. Blackjack Pershing, who would rise to become the commander of the American Expeditionary Forces in World War I, noted how the shared experience in Cuba not only erased regional, but also racial barriers, at least among the troops. He said, White regiments, black regiments, regulars and rough riders representing the young manhood of the North and South fought shoulder to shoulder, unmindful of race or color, and mindful only of their common duty as Americans. Pershing earned the derisive nickname Blackjack while commanding a troop of the segregated 10th Cavalry Regiment, a.k.a. the Buffalo Soldiers, before the war in Cuba, and he happily joined them again during the Spanish-American War. And we will definitely talk more about Pershing in future episodes of the podcast. The war against Spain ended quickly. Spanish forces withdrew from Cuba on July 17th, 1898, which ended four centuries of colonial rule. At the same time, troops seized Puerto Rico with little resistance, and Commodore George Dewey routed Spain from the Philippines, and Guam was ceded as a U.S. territory. 
Though not due to the Spanish-American War, it was also at this time that Hawaii was annexed. At the dawn of the 20th century, the United States gained footholds in the Caribbean and the Pacific, joining the club of colonial empires. In a matter of months, the United States had established itself as a world power with a new stake in international affairs, a condition that would exact unimagined responsibilities and a great deal of blood in the century to come. Of course, even a quick war comes at the cost of lost human lives. In Cuba, 460 Americans died fighting the Spanish, and another 5,200 were killed by malaria, dysentery, and yellow fever. After the U.S. occupied the Philippines, instead of liberating it as the Filipinos supporting the fight against Spain had hoped, the Americans held on to power and an insurrection broke out between 1899 and 1901, which saw another 4,300 American deaths, not to mention an estimated 40,000 Filipino combatants and civilians. Few understood the importance of honoring fallen soldiers better than President McKinley, who had seen war firsthand. He understood the pain of losing comrades in arms, so almost as soon as the fighting stopped, he ordered teams to Cuba and Puerto Rico so that each battlefield grave could be quickly found, marked, and hopefully its occupant identified. Less than a week later, Congress also appropriated funds to disinter fallen Americans and bring them back to the United States. This recovery program set a significant precedent in the United States, which, for the first time, pledged to bring dead servicemen home from overseas instead of burying them on foreign soil if their next of kin requested repatriation. From August to October 1898, D.H. Rhodes, the U.S. Inspector of National Cemeteries, slogged across the islands of Cuba and Puerto Rico and found 654 graves of U.S. soldiers and civilians associated with the war, positively identifying 141 sets of remains on the spot. In February 1899, Rhodes returned with a team of 46 undertakers, foremen, and laborers to bring those remains home. When the dead in the Caribbean had been cleaned, placed in new zinc-lined caskets, and loaded onto army transports for the trip home, Rhodes went on to the Philippines, where he would oversee disinterment activities from 1899 to 1902. During the Civil War, 42.5% of all war dead went to their graves unidentified. Because of Rhodes' tireless efforts, that number dropped to 13.6% in Cuba and Puerto Rico, and an amazing 1.3% in the Philippines. In the next war, casualty identification would become much easier thanks to a revolutionary invention, a small metal disc stamped with the name, rank, and serial number of its owner, what you probably know as the dog tag. While the identification efforts were ongoing overseas, President McKinley was back on the home front trying to wrap up the war he never wanted in the first place. To build support for his campaign for the Treaty of Paris, which had been signed on December 10, 1898 but still required Senate ratification, and $20 million for the acquisition of the Philippines, 
which the Senate also needed to approve, this Union veteran Republican president went to tour the South, where a warm reception was far from guaranteed. On a cold December morning, the president's train rolled into Atlanta, where thousands of citizens cheered their welcome. When the first passenger stepped off the train, the cheers grew even louder. It was fighting Joe Wheeler, back from Cuba and there to support McKinley during the trip. On this first stop of his trip, the president addressed a joint session at the Atlanta State House and stunned the crowd, pledging that from now on, the federal government would care for the hundreds of neglected Confederate graves located in northern states. McKinley said, quote, Every soldier's grave made during the unfortunate Civil War is a tribute to American valor. And while when those graves were made, we differed wildly about the future of the government, the differences were long ago settled by the arbitrament of arms, and the time has now come when in the spirit of fraternity we should share with you in the care of the graves of Confederate soldiers. The cordial feelings now happily existing between the North and South prompts this gracious act, and if it needed further justification, it is found in the gallant loyalty to the Union flag so conspicuously shown in the year just past by the sons and grandsons of these heroic dead. Sectional feelings no longer hold back the love we feel for each other. The old flag again waves over us in peace with new glories." End quote. At least one Georgia legislator, himself a Confederate veteran, openly wept at the announcement. Though some in the North opposed this new policy, President McKinley's tour was a success, and in February 1899, the Treaty of Paris was ratified by one vote and the last-minute conversions of two Southern senators. The nation was at peace and united once again. On April 6, 1899, the first 336 sets of Spanish-American war dead arrived at Arlington. They would continue arriving until 1912. McKinley and all of Washington came out on December 28, 1899 to greet 150 dead from the USS Maine. Only 74 could be positively identified. They were laid to rest in a new section of the cemetery with a commanding view of the Lee Mansion. The Maine's former commander, Captain Charles D. Sigsby, presided over the ceremony, with help from ship's chaplain, the Reverend John B. Chadwick, who himself plucked many of his dead and dying shipmates from Havana Harbor less than a year before. It would take 13 years for the rest of the Maine's victims to be recovered and returned. In 1915, the mast of the battleship was salvaged and brought to Washington and placed in Arlington as a monument, and is today the centerpiece of the USS Maine Memorial in Section 24. Keeping the President's promise to those in the South, the Confederate interments began in 1901. Like all the other tombstones, the Confederate markers are marble or granite, 36 inches tall, 10 inches wide, and four inches thick, but unlike the Union markers that are curved on the top, the Confederate markers come to a point. 
One popular story is that these markers were given an angled top to discourage those unhappy with the Confederates' presence from sitting on the headstones. More likely, however, is that the Confederate headstones were given a distinctive look to be able to identify them at a glance. Like the markers, the layout for the Confederate section, officially Section 16, is also unique. Instead of being arranged in long, regimented lines like other parts of the cemetery, the Confederate graves are in concentric circles around a center point. And now a warning, the next sentence contains what will hopefully be the only political comment I make ever in the history of this entire podcast. In 1914, noted racist and Confederate sympathizer President Woodrow Wilson and there was my political statement, unveiled a Confederate monument donated by the United Daughters of the Confederacy at the center of these graves on the 106th birthday of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. The unique design of the headstones and the section reflected the South's ongoing struggle to find a place in the nation while proudly standing apart from it. Once unwelcomed at the National Cemetery, Grizzled Southern veterans realized how far they had come when they arrived to commemorate Memorial Day at Arlington in 1903. There they walked among the neatly tended graves of more than 400 of their comrades, each headstone decorated with fresh flowers provided by Theodore Roosevelt, the country's new president. Old Confederates reciprocated the gesture, marching over to the tomb of the Civil War unknowns, and spelled out a message in a display of blossoms, in the spirit of fraternity. That phrase was borrowed from McKinley's speech in Atlanta and was heartfelt, but it would take generations to cleanse the last dregs of bitterness from the Civil War. In 1906, Northerners and Southerners once again converged to pay final respects to a man both sides had come to admire. Fighting Joe Wheeler, the 69-year-old hero of both the Confederacy and later the Union, had died. Some ex-Confederates stayed away from the ceremony in protest of what they saw as a betrayal. Others attended and said nothing. Wheeler chose to be buried in his Union blue uniform and was afforded a spot of honor in Section 2 among such famous former enemies of the South as Philip Sheridan, George Crook, and Edward Ord. Placed among many Union men who had come to admire this pint-sized general and his instincts for national healing, laid to rest in Section 2, Grave 1089, Fighting Joe's plot is marked by one of Arlington's tallest obelisks, which still casts its long shadow over neighboring tombstones. Now before we end today, I want to share my favorite anecdote from Joe Wheeler's life. In 1902, Wheeler attended the 100th anniversary of the U.S. Military Academy, of which he was a graduate. He wore his dress uniform from the Spanish-American War and was spotted by former Confederate colleagues James Longstreet and Edward Porter Alexander. Longstreet recognized him coming near and reportedly said, Joe, I hope Almighty God takes me before he does you for I want to be within the gates of hell to hear Jubal Early cuss you in that blue uniform. Longstreet got his wish, 
but I am still waiting to hear an account of the extent of Jubal Early's profanity. Now next week, we will continue discussing Arlington in the 20th century and might even get around to the story behind the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And again, I want to thank you all for tuning in and listening and ask if you have an opportunity to please rate the show, which allows others to find it. And for more information about today's episode, including pictures, you can visit the show's website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. And as always, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.